A visit with former NASA chief scientist Jim Green, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Jim Green headed NASA's Planetary Science Division for an unprecedented 12 years before becoming the agency's chief scientist. He has returned to tell us about a recent workshop that considered doing big science from the moon, but Jim and I will mostly look back across his rich and fascinating career. You're in for some great stories. I'll get to space headlines from the downlink in a couple of minutes. First, though, I have something to share with you. Here's how I express it in a message we've posted for all to see at planetary.org. I had been working at the Planetary Society for two years when co-founder and executive director Louis Friedman gave me the thumbs up. It was only a few weeks later that Planetary Radio premiered. Lou was my first guest on that November 25, 2002 episode. It also featured what would become a regular visit with our former colleague, Emily Lakdawalla. We closed the show as we have now ended over 1,000 episodes with What's Up. My friend Bruce Betts told us what to look for in the night sky, looked back across the history of space exploration, provided a reverberating random space fact, and offered an entertaining space trivia contest challenge. That show could only be heard on a single radio station and our primitive website. The series has changed very little since then. The most significant upgrade was the addition of our monthly Space Policy Edition six years ago. So... Other than a new theme, listeners who had only heard that first episode would have no difficulty recognizing Planetary Radio today. My pride in this achievement is far greater than anything else in my professional life. We're now in the top half percent of podcasts. The broadcast version of each episode is aired by about 100 public stations. We have presented more than 2,000 space exploration leaders to an eager audience. We've gone on stages around the world to present Planetary Radio Live, and I've visited many of our planet's most important and inspiring sites where space science and exploration are advanced. It has been a glorious odyssey, and it's time to step back. I told our wonderful Chief Operating Officer Jennifer Vaughn many months ago that two decades of hosting and producing Planetary Radio would be enough. I'll mark the 20th anniversary in November of this year by handing over the reins to a new host. Our search for this person has already begun. I'm very grateful to know that the Society will still keep me busy. Jennifer and others have asked me to use some of the time I'll reclaim to participate in other important Society work, and I very much hope that my voice will still be heard on Planetary Radio now and then. My greatest joy in this job has always been the opportunity to talk with my guests. I regard all of them as heroes, and I look forward to more conversations. There will be another opportunity to express my gratitude to everyone who has made Planetary Radio a success and a personal joy. For now, I'll simply thank all of you who listen and who have supported the Society so generously. We will keep you informed of our progress toward this transition, I promise that the best is yet to come. Ad Astra. 
That's it. As always, you can write to me at Planetary Radio at planetary.org. And now those downlink headlines beginning with the marvelous images from the James Webb Space Telescope. As you'll hear from Jim Green, they now include preliminary studies of Jupiter. Jim will talk about how observations within our solar system were added to the list of targets for the JWST. NASA's Perseverance rover collected its ninth sample from Jezero Crater. This one came from an ancient river delta. And then there's that big rocket that blew up. SpaceX was not planning to ignite or launch the super-heavy booster on the launch pad at its Texas facility, but things happen. We've got more from the July 15 edition of our free newsletter at planetary.org downlink. Jim Green was in Portugal when we met online a few days ago. As you'll hear, he was there to teach in this summer's International Space University session, something he has been doing for many years. This may explain the poor audio quality. It's one of those plan-rad conversations that is so special, I think you'll put up with it. I certainly hope so. Jim Green, welcome back to Planetary Radio. It is always a pleasure. Well, thanks so much, Matt. I'm delighted to be here. I have so many questions for you. And then I realized we have to start with the most obvious one. As the audience hears this, it will have been barely a week since that glorious revelation that came out of Goddard Space Flight Center and around the world, uh, those images from the James Webb Space Telescope. You're out of the country. Were you watching? What was it like for you? I did. I I did uh, log on to www.nasa.gov and uh, was one of the gazillions that uh, watched it live. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I'd also seen you know, President Biden's release of the deep field the night before. So uh, uh, I was ready for some even more excitement. <laughs> we, we could spend an hour just talking about those images and what yeah. this telescope promises uh, over the next, let's hope, 20 years at least. But I just want to ask you about one, since after all, you okay. did run planetary sciences. That spectra that we got from that big exoplanet WASP-96b, what does that say to you about both what it actually revealed, that spectrum, but also the potential for other exoplanet uh, observations? I loved it. You know, there's all kinds of stuff in, in there, but what they did, of course, was just show us the water vapor bands. We heard from uh, one of the JWST co-investigators on last week's show, uh, Tom Green at uh, Ames Research, about his high hopes for uh, the exoplanets that he and others want to look at in the future and that maybe we'll be finding things at least as and maybe much more interesting than water in, in future spectrum. Oh, we will. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Oh, yeah. oh, I like that. No question about it. But, but before we leave this topic, sure. we should really talk about another image that's been released. And that, of course, is of Jupiter. Oh, yes. Yeah. I really love that. You know, it shows several things that Jupiter is hot. It radiates in the infrared. And I mean a lot. <laughs> and so uh, this tells us, you know, the planet is still cooling off from when it was made 4.6 billion years ago. Wow. More important is that we tracked them. You know, JWST actually looked at things in our solar system and moved with them 
to be able to get the image. That is just mind-blowing. I know that they were talking about what a challenge it would be to capture these solar system objects, partly because they're so bright. I never thought about the tracking. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. <laughs> it's just amazing. I know, I know all about it. I have the backstory <laughs> you need to know. Oh, it, well, do tell. <laughs> all right. So in uh, 2007, I was head of planetary science. John Morse was the head of astrophysics. And Alan Stern was the associate administrator. As we typically do when we do these big strategic missions, they came in and they gave, it, gave us a wonderful overview of what was going on. And so after about an hour, I raised my hand and I said, this is fantastic, I love it, but what about objects in the solar system? And the reason why I said that, planetary scientists get about 8% of the Hubble time, uh. even though about 60% of their press releases come from solar system objects. Oh, now there's okay? an interesting comparison. Yeah. It just happens. Uh -huh. Things happen in the solar system. Hubble's able to capture it, and that draws a lot of attention to it. Hey, nothing wrong with that. When I asked my question, the project returned and said, this is an astrophysics mission. <laughs> this is not a planetary mission. What are you talking about? and I'm paraphrasing it, Alan Stern tasked them to take a look at what it would take to be able to observe things in the solar system. So a month or two later, they came back and they said, you caught us at the perfect time. We're developing the requirements for this work and we can fit it right in. And we know how much code, we've taken an estimate of that. It will cost about $12 million. Uh, Alan turned to me and said, Jim, what are you going to do about it? And I said, who do I make the check out to? <laughs> that's a, I think that's a bargain. By the way, last time I checked, the solar system was part of the cosmos. So I, I do think it's appropriate. I'm going to thank Alan it next is. time I talk to him. And I thank yeah. you now because I'm looking forward to what's happening in our own neighborhood. Yeah, me too. I mean... We've got to be able to make these kind of measurements of our planets as comparison to what JWST is going to do to exoplanets, apples to apples. Great way to start out. Let's get to at least the first of the topics that I, I knew I wanted to talk to you about today, and that is this recent uh, workshop, which I mentioned to the audience in, in my opening. Azita Valenia, who directs the NASA Engineering and Safety Center, I think she organized the workshop working with people like you. She is attending a conference in Europe, was unable to join us today. She was very happy to have you tell us about this. This re okay. recent gathering happened uh, in early June. And I noted on the agenda, you delivered an overview on the first day of, uh, of the workshop. And I hope, that, uh, I hope that listeners will take a look at your slides because they describe really, a, uh, to me, an awe-inspiring spectrum of, of science mysteries that extend from our own solar system out to, you know, the borders of the cosmos, really. First of all, is this evidence of, of the science, of the potential of science that could be done from the moon? Oh, yeah. I mean, the concept of doing these kind of workshops is really important for NASA. You know, we have to be able to think ahead about what might be possible from different venues. Of course, what's happening 
that uh, we found out in the region that there are parts of the radio spectrum that we use, but we're using it so heavily, it dominates any natural signal. And then there's parts of the radio that we can't see. And those are also extremely important areas of the cosmos that we need to interrogate. Hmm. You know, it is kind of like the last vestiges of a open wavelength that we really haven't had a chance to look at. I mean, I guess this explains why we're seeing radio telescope systems like ALMA built as high up as we can get them on Earth, for one thing. But I also think back to when I was a kid and I started seeing way back then these artists' concepts for radio telescopes on the far side of the moon. I mean, (laughs) this is a good piece of what we're talking about, right? I mean, this is a long-held dream. Yeah, in fact, I remember specifically reading a Scientific American article about the possibility of radio telescopes on the moon. And here I had the privilege to be able to summarize in this important frequency range, what could we see? And it's really exploded you know, the kinds of things that uh, we can't observe from Earth, stuff up to 10 megahertz, exoplanet magnetospheres, wow. the aurora, the radio aurora that occurs in those magnetos, tells us all kinds of things about the importance of the magnetic fields in creating habitable planets. Also, the sun kicks out a bunch of stuff in these radio frequency ranges. And so that's important for us to monitor for space weather purposes. And then, of course, we know right after the Big Bang, there's a special event that happened. And, of course, we've never probed it, and so astronomers call it the Dark Ages. (laughs) Uh, But let's shine some light on that. So in the 100 kilohertz to several megahertz range, we can look back and see how hydrogen right after the Big Bang, is emitting in this 21-centimeter line that's Doppler shifted to us into this frequency range. And how that matter comes together then to start stars. Wow. What are some of the other things that came up at this workshop? Well, right now, the big mystery in fast radio bursts are what the heck are they? Are they neutron stars? Are they black holes? These are some of the things that we can monitor better than we ever have before. You know, when we look at the sun, we know that there's a region that generates extreme ultraviolet radiation. And this is important because it heats our atmosphere and rises up, sweeps out south, and is very important part of the, of the solar cycle. But we can get an indication of what's going on in this radio frequency range of hundreds of megahertz. Now we can see hundreds of megahertz, but the problem is there's so much interference with other things going on in the ground that by going to the far side of the moon, we get this radio window we've never seen before, up to about 10 megahertz. And then from 10 megahertz up to 100 gigahertz, we then can see our own planetary magnetospheres, radiation belts, Hmm. solar activity monitoring, fast radio bursts. And in fact, you know, the really spectacular observations of the black hole just occurred 
we can complement that. It really is all about getting another radio observatory at a higher altitude and further away from the Earth that then the radio interferometry technique could work. Sure. So we could extend the event horizon telescope concept all the way to the moon. So the resolution that we can get is enormously different. Wow, that'd be a heck of a baseline, wouldn't it? It uh, would be. Was there a discussion also at the workshop about the kinds of science that we need to do on the moon just to understand that body better? Well, we've done those kind of workshops several times before. As head of planetary, I was uh, also supporting workshops where going back to the moon, humans can collect more samples, where we can understand much more about the interior of the moon, tease out bombardments that's happened on the moon, and do a better job on dating things elsewhere in the solar system. Yeah, there's so many things like that. This is a step that we've never really looked at before, and, uh, and, and the workshop was a perfect venue to be able to do it. Do you now see within NASA a, a real commitment to making sure that this coming new era of humans on the moon, uh, Artemis, that it enables and, and really supports the, the kinds of science that, that you're describing? I think so. What we do when we do these kind of workshops is really get the juices, the creative juices flowing, not only in the science community, but in the engineering community. Precursor missions that could be laid down that may be robotically controlled mm. can get us a tantalizing glimpse before then we make this bigger decisions about having human-tended radio systems that we could build. Do you get uh, any good feeling, uh, optimism, encouraged by uh, the success of China putting something on the far side and putting sort of a rudimentary uh, radio telescope back there? Well, sure. Any science that, that comes from observations from space that's, that's open and public will be thought about, considered, mm. talked about, and will be important for us to make decisions on how to build on that knowledge that we gain. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be hard. And if humans go, it's very likely, almost certainly going to be dangerous to do science on the moon. Do the benefits, the potential benefits that you're talking about, the kinds of science we can do, do they outweigh the, these other factors? Good question. It's very much like, uh, I think, when we launched Hubble and, and before we did that, it was serviceable because we knew it was going to be a revolutionary telescope. And it was. Now we're looking at, in the same way, how we can do science from the moon and do some revolutionary things. That's always a question that has to be weighed, and it's weighed against the knowledge we gain. And it's enormous in this case. It's not easy to do science uh, at the South Pole or the Antarctic either, is it? No, it's not. Your NASA colleague, uh, former associate administrator and former astronaut, of course, uh, John Grunsfeld, uh, he delivered a keynote at this workshop titled Synergy Between Robotic and Human Exploration, which you just hinted at there a moment ago. And he included this provocative statement, robots don't discover anything. What, what was John getting at? <laughs> well, what he was getting at is really our creation of robots. And then those basically are the extension of ourselves, whether they're on the moon or on Mars, in making those kind of discoveries, you know, it really comes back to enhancing our own knowledge. 
So that's what he was talking about. In addition to that, he was quite emphatic about when we are exploring the moon, we're going to have, you know, our pet dog Rover with us. <laughs> Maybe something the size of curiosity, who knows? Hmm. But having the laboratory capability that you take a sample and can do a pre-analysis right there on mineralogy or, or composition and radio those results perhaps back to Earth or back to the habitat. Something that then allows the astronaut to complement his already a massive ability to pick samples and make decisions in the field and rapidly go to places that we need to go and discover more new and exciting things. We're still talking about a few years down the line before uh, that, you know, as NASA likes to say, that first woman and next man walk on the surface of the moon. But there's already some pretty cool stuff underway, thanks to recent developments and and projects at NASA, including... uh, commercial uh, payloads going to uh, the lunar surface. I I just wonder what your thoughts are about the the more immediate kinds of science uh, that we can look forward to maybe in the next two or three years. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is just an exciting era. What's happened has been a revolution in our understanding of what's going on at the moon. That started about 10 years or so ago, where we really could tease out that there's some really important organic and volatiles that are in these permanently shadowed regions. The fact now that we have some indication that there's maybe hundreds of millions of tons of water Hmm. and perhaps many other things is really quite exciting. This enables us then to think about leveraging that region to be able to provide resources for it It's also an important place because we can get constant power, like solar from the sun, placed in the right places. In addition to permanently shadowed, there are permanently lit areas. It really enhances our interest in going exactly there. Are you excited also about the new technologies that are being developed? The efforts of these companies, some of them very young companies, designing lunar landers, but I'm also thinking of, you know, the, the individuals, some of them funded by NASA through NIAC. We, we talk about them on this show to do sure. the kind of science that, that you're talking about, maybe to use robots to build uh, using uh, in situ resources to build that radio telescope on the far side. I mean, this is pretty cool stuff if you're any kind of a geek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but there's another thing going on, this concept of sustainability. This has really taken hold. And because new technology helps facilitate that concept. So let me give you an example. Sure. Everything that we take up requires an extensive amount of resources to get it there. And we want to be able to use it, reuse it, and not throw it away. Things from packaging food to things that we do on space station that ends up at the moment being garbage, hmm. you know, we can jettison that. We're not going to fill up a crater with garbage on the moon. Okay. It's not going to happen. We're going to be able to take that packaging and, and then melt it and then put it as part of a 3D printing technology to make other things out of it. So we've got to continue to think about sustainability and the technologies that we want to implement to be able to turn one thing into another. We turn it into something else that's useful. 
I like that picture that you paint. And as always, I love the passion that you bring to talking about these things, which is sort of a segue into, uh, as we say in the business, changing gears here. Are we in high gear or low gear? <laughs> <laughs> always high gear, I think, in your case. Okay, all right. You obviously enjoy sharing what uh, my boss, the science guy, calls the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of science and space. You know, a great example is your popular uh, NASA podcast, Gravity Assist. I just wonder where your passion for all of this stuff and sharing it got started. For most of us, it oh, was wow. a very long time ago. Well, even when I was at Marshall Space Flight Center, we were constantly thinking about how can we talk about esoteric topics as magnetospheric physics to a general audience. And, and we created some easy looking uh, graphics that we leveraged and used. And, and, and so that was important. And I enjoyed talking about it. My, my uh, PhD thesis advisor, Don Burnett, mm. always loved doing public talks, and he was so good at it that I also aspired to that. You know, I learned a lot from him. So uh, that really probably started early. But I have to tell you, it really kicked off in 2012 when we decided that we were going to bring everybody along with us landing Curiosity on Mars. Yeah, well, you know you had several thousand of us in the Pasadena Convention Center who were right there with you, jumping up and down with joy when, when that rover got cranked down to the surface. Um, well, we had enclaves of those thousands of yeah. people, as you said, everywhere. Yeah. We had you know, at museums. In fact, Times Square had like 5,000 people you know, watching it on the Jumbotron in the rain. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we actually used a live shot of those people sitting on the ground in Times Square looking up at that big screen. We used it during our show. Yeah, I, I, if that didn't demonstrate to any doubters out there the kinds of enthusiasm that the general public has for this stuff, given a little bit of encouragement and a little bit of information delivered the right way, it's right. there, right? I mean, you see it all the time. Right. So this particular excitement was really infectious. I even got a lot of the scientists hmm. to get knowledgeable about what Curiosity is going to do, understand how the landing goes, so that they could communicate that to their local public or the press. And that worked too. So the more we get people involved in this, telling people what they're getting for their money. I mean, you know, we really taking uh, funds from taxes you know, we, we have to be good stewards of that money. And what we return is wonderful knowledge that we can act on in many ways that help us understand the evolution of our Earth, what will happen. We now know what happens on Venus can happen on Earth. You know, what's happened on Mars can happen on Earth. So comparative planetology is really important. These are things that uh, we need to communicate. And, and it's just once, it's often. What do you think of what a lot of us see as this transition that has taken place over quite a few decades now that has taken us from Carl Sagan, a truly yeah. great scientist, but one yeah. that was held with such disdain by many of his colleagues 
because he dared to go on the Johnny Carson show yeah. or he dared to make a popular television series of his own to today. And the change in, in attitude, not just by scientists, especially young scientists, but also yeah. by their, their managers toward this kind of activity. It's a welcome change. I'm only sorry that Carl had to be the pioneer in that area and take that criticism from his colleagues, which is always hard to do. Yeah. But he did it with enormous dignity, and he did an enormous job helping scientists really saying, hey, it's okay to talk about what you're doing. <laughs> Sound, now it sounds laughable, but but it, back then, not so yeah. much. Yeah. I know. Fascinating. I, know. I, I got a quote from Lori Garver's new book that somebody said to her. I don't remember who said it to her, but it was that the first person who goes through the wall always gets bloodier than the people who follow. So. <laughs> yeah, there's an opening there that has to be made. <laughs> right. You mentioned the great Don Gurnett and uh, the influence he had on his on your life. I want to hear more about that. But I mean, my gosh, that would have been enough. I mean, I know a lot of people out there who are leaders now who were lucky enough to study under him as you did. Yeah. But you also were mentored by my God, James Van Allen, <laughs> the man the Van Allen belts are named yeah, after. True. What a start for your career in this business. They're all Iowans. <laughs> right. University of Iowa. <laughs> Well, uh, Alan was born and raised in a small town just down the road called Mount Pleasant. Mm. And if you go another 30 or 40 miles east, you end up in Burlington, Iowa, where I was born. Mm. <laughs> Don Gurnett was born in the Cedar Rapids area. But uh, it was really Dan that at the end of ex the Explorer series, you know, who was offered the job and opportunity to stay in the in, in Washington, D.C., Maryland area, decided, no, I'm going to go back to the University of Iowa and I'm going to teach. And with that, he brought the space program with him. And so uh, Don Gurnett was uh, the next generation student that he had. It really inspired him and Lou Frank and just a, a cadre of unbelievable, fantastic scientists. And these scientists, anything they did in space was new. Hmm. Giving an example, a really good, solid scientific career is about a hundred peer review papers. Hmm. When you think about that, you know, between a three and 35 year career, that's like three solid papers a year. And that's kind of tough to do. Don had more than 650 papers. Wow. <laughs> I would go in his office and, you know, we were talking about this and that and looking at data. And he was always working on a paper. And, and how he did it is he just had a, a pad and, and a pencil and he would just write it out and, and, you know, and walk in and there he is working on his latest paper. <laughs> so he was an era for which anything they launch, you know, made huge discoveries. I knew what that was like. Hmm. I had the privilege to be involved in, in a mission called Image. In particular, a wonderful experiment, which was a radio plasma imager called RPI. And we generated radio waves. And then the plasma all around us would interact and reflect them back. We then can deconvolve and find out all kinds of stuff by this kind of remote sensing. 
I mean, one year, I wrote 12 papers alone. Wow. I mean, that's like one a month. What a start. I, were, were you still an undergrad or had you become a grad student by the time you were working with this image data? Oh, I was a well-established scientist by that time. Ah, sorry. Okay. I had about 50 papers by then. Ah. And I was at Goddard Space Flight Center. So I started out at Marshall and then uh, spent five years there and then 25 years at Goddard before I went down to NASA headquarters in uh, 2006. Much more of my conversation with Jim Green is just ahead on Planetary Radio. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. By the way, was it during your time at Marshall that you got to do a lot of uh, time in the pool? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Tell people so that, about that's that. Another, yeah, yeah, it's another thing that NASA does is human exploration. And how they practice what they do in space is in a water tank. And so when I was at the University of Iowa, my roommate was a scuba diver. I ended up becoming the scuba club president for the University of Iowa after I got my uh, certification. Really enjoyed that. But I dove in really horrible stuff, you know, like rivers, quarries, lakes, you know, visibility sometimes maybe four inches. It's Iowa. It's not Hawaii. It's Iowa. It's Iowa, it's Iowa diving. Always cold. Mm -hmm. But uh, I loved it. And then had an opportunity to take a tour of Marshall. And I walked into this 70 feet across, 45 feet deep bathtub <laughs> with the shuttle right in, the, right in the bottom of it. God, I got to get in that. Within a year, I was uh, uh, applied to be a diver and I got in it. So I made about 150 dives and did some wonderful dives on Hubble repair building space station, the repair of the solar maximum mission, one of the most spectacular missions that the public knows hardly anything about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it, because it was the first use of the man maneuvering unit, you know, this Buck Rogers yeah. backpack that you just fly all over the place. The thing that George Clooney did in Gravity, you know, we practiced that in the tank. Really fabulous stuff. Very cool stuff. But I want to go back to Iowa for a moment or two. All uh, right. it, it sounded like they let you, and, and back then you were still a kid, but they let you get access to some of what I assume were at the time some of the most advanced computers available, uh, like three <laughs> Univac systems. Are these those old yeah. mainframe systems that filled rooms? <laughs> hey, you really did your background research. Oh, well, yeah, I, so I, I go was back that far, too. So <laughs> computer operator. I, uh -huh. I did that uh, part-time. You know, as a graduate student, uh, you know, I was uh, taking classes, you know, and I was paid to be a researcher and, uh, you know, sort of make ends meet I a part-time job. <laughs> and that was being in the computer room, the University of Iowa computer room. And it had three machines. They were all Univac. So this is a time when scientists and, you know, others, you know, learning how to use uh, computers would type up their 
programs on cards. You put it in a deck and then you go to a window and hand it to an operator. And I'm the one on the other side that takes those decks and run them. So I had the four to 12 shift. But I have to tell you, I really had a wonderful time doing that. I learned so much about managing computers, the importance mm -hmm. of, of doing, I mean, I could at a teletype like console, you know, this is like in 1980, like, like you have in front of you is your computer keyboard, then I'm running these computers and run all kinds of programs. And then when I return the data, I would say, well, I think some neat things came out of this. You know, you got great plots. You know, what are you doing? And so I would learn about some new science from all these, all these other scientists in the physics department that are using these computers. So I actually had a great idea as to what the University of Iowa is doing in space. Wow. Not only that, I would work 4 to 12. And at 12, a young lady would come in, and she was a single mother, and she would do the 12 to 8 shift. Yeah, and, and we're talking mid, midnight to 8 a.m., right? Midnight to 8. Yeah, 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 midnight to 8. And sometimes with child care problems, she just couldn't do that. So she'd call me up and say, Jim, I, I can't get in. Is that a problem? And I said, <laughs> don't worry. I got it. <laughs> so I would do her shift. Now, what was really great about it, don't tell anybody at the University of Iowa. Okay. <laughs> but I would finish all her work by about four in the morning. So that means I got three fast computers, this is relative yeah. at that time, to my beck and call. And so then I did my own individual re research, and, and, and that involved ray tracing in anisotropic magnetospheres. Which, this is really where I cut my teeth on taking theory and applying it to the observations we were making by simulations. And uh, I did a lot. Oh, man. I mean, I had them at my beck and call. <laughs> this you is know, and I made huge progress. This is exactly where I was hoping to go with this, because now I'm assuming my uh, smart thermostat that's on the wall downstairs below me probably has more computing power than the Univax oh, yeah. that you worked with. Oh, yeah. But did you oh, yeah. begin to get an, an inkling of what computer resources would be able to do for us in terms of modeling the cosmos and, and a lot of the oh, great questions? Yeah. Oh, uh, it, it was just going to do nothing but improve. The three univacs were like a, a view of history, but sh a short-term history. Hmm. You know, the univac one was really primitive, and it generated paper tape. You would run that to generate paper tape that would then go out to one of the radio observatories to track one of our satellites. That's wow. how we tracked it. Good Lord. <laughs> and then univac two came in probably a couple times faster, but it now had tape racks, tape drives connected to it. Now you can do a lot more with it. And then when the Univac 3 came in, man, that was just heaven. <laughs> you know, that was several times faster than the Univac 2. And that was a matter of just a few years. The whole field was exploding, and I could easily see that. Yeah, well, Moore's Law before Moore made it a law. Uh, it I'm fascinated to hear how having this access to other scientists' data, because you were processing it for them, did that also have something to do with helping you to understand 
how multidisciplinary studies, particularly planetary science, would need to be. I think so. I always had that drive to learn many different things. And that's kind of interest, interesting in the sense that typically at this time, your advisor says, if you want to be a famous scientist, you have to burn a hole in steel and, and know everything about one topic mm. or everything mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. And I never looked at mm. <laughs> I wanted to apply what I knew to other disciplines, to other things and, and combine them. So when I became the head of planetary, that was just like heaven. I mean, I got to know new scientists, even though I was a planetary magnetosphere, you know, scientist where I did work at Jupiter and Earth. And, you know, uh, I learned all kinds of things about the planets, the geology, you know, the atmospheres, and it's all connected. That really, uh, really excited me, and I really enjoyed the whole time I was there. How did that attitude then extend into your later job when you became the head of all science at NASA, the chief scientist? <laughs> well, uh, it probably helped me uh, because I had an appreciation of everything that NASA was doing and a, a deep appreciation as a scientist for what human exploration was trying to do and the struggles that they were doing. Uh, in fact, as uh, head of planetary, I went out of my way to to try to connect our scientists and those uh, human exploration engineers by developing uh, a lunar planetary institutes and, and things where, and venues where they could work together. And that really helped me, I think. You may have just at least partially answered my next question. And that is to tell us the things that from your time as a leader of planetary sciences and then as chief scientist, what are you most proud of? Projects either that oh, wow. you were involved with or things that happened at NASA during that period. Give us some highlights here. Well, I had the opportunity to vent NASA's first internet, oh. which was SPAN. I'm very proud of that. In fact, by the end of 1980, I was doing email and remote log on. I was running job on, jobs on computers all across the United States. And then in uh, 1985, I extended it to the European Space Agency. And then in 87, we went to uh, the Japanese Space Agency. 92, we were in Moscow. So the ability to use uh, computers and the way they can communicate just exploded during that time. You know, we then developed proposals together and really began this process of, uh, of connecting more of these disciplines and doing, doing things uh, that we couldn't have done otherwise via fax or telephone. You know, uh, computers were really a, a central part of that. Or, or having to uh, carry paper tape to the uh, radio telescope. Yes, to the radio telescope. <laughs> what were we thinking, right? <laughs> <laughs> that actually led me to a, a fabulous job at Goddard Space Flight Center. That was a wonderful opportunity to take the vast data res reserves and archive that they had and put it online. I was able to develop the first online archive for NASA at the National Space Science Data Center that enabled them to run processes over the entire data set and provide a much more uniform calibration capability. And new things just exploded out of that. Things that we take for granted today. 
we just did all kinds of stuff in that early days uh, of probing how to use networks and online mass storages. I also think of how this probably has led us to today, where we see, uh, in fact, uh, just a day ago, as you and I speak, all of the images captured and processed so far by the James Webb Space Telescope put online where anybody, not just scientists, not just engineers, anybody can work with that data. It's very inspiring. Well, one of the things that we see is there's been a gradual evolution of how scientists deal with their data and also pressure from NASA headquarters to make it more open sooner. Mm -hmm. When they do that and they see benefit doing that, they want to do that. And that's just the right thing to do. We're going to talk in a couple of weeks with two guys at JPL who have a new citizen science project called Cloud Spotting on Mars. And it's such a good example of this. They've already, the project's only two weeks old. They've already got 2,000 people around the world helping them analyze and discover these clouds, these beautiful clouds above Mars. Are there, are there one or two other things that you, you want to call out uh, out of this uh, long and continuing career that you're most proud of? Well, in, in the tank at Neutral Buoyancy Simulator at Marshall Space Flight Center, as I mentioned, I did about 150 dives, and my role was a safety diver. I was responsible for the life of the person in the suit. Hmm. We did a number of risky things in space that we have to practice in the tank, and the water environment provides another risk element. On many days, uh, had the opportunity to be at the right place at the right time to avoid disasters in the tank. And so I'm, I'm quite proud of that. You yeah. know, I'll have to write that up in my memoirs, I think. You sure do have to. <laughs> I'll be talking with Lori Leshen on next week's show. As you know, she's just become the first woman to direct the Jet Propulsion Lab. Well, she was my boss at one point. I should know I that. got her. Yeah. I went from managing just the National Space Science Data Center into managing a division that had the NSSDC in it. It also had two other groups. And it was during that time uh, uh, that Lori became uh, the uh, director of Code 600 or the science director at Goddard Space Flight. So I had a wonderful opportunity to, to work with her. In fact, we were in the same building. It must have been at least a year. She's not the first woman to uh, head a NASA center, but she's the first at JPL. Well, she's highly qualified, uh, and I am just absolutely delighted that, she, that they hired her because she's going to be fantastic. I, I only wish that I was head of planetary when she was head of JPL. <laughs> More broadly, what does this say about the ongoing effort within NASA and affiliated agencies to provide more opportunities. You know, you you go back to those uh, Apollo oh, days and all those. Yeah, yeah, it's moving in the right direction. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful to be able to have such a diversity in our planetary science field and many of the other fields recognized through the promotion of uh, women and other minorities to these wonderful positions. Men don't have a lack on it. You know, we, we don't know everything. <laughs> they bring a view that will be extremely in. 
important. You're talking to us as we set up front from Portugal because you are, and I don't think it's your first time there, you're working with this summer's session of the International Space University. True. Again, it, it's kind of like we're talking to people who, you know, came through Don Garnett's uh, lab. The number of people that I've had on this show who are now leading space exploration, who are ISU graduates. Why did you come back there this summer? What What is it about ISU that uh, made you want to devote another summer to it? Oh, ISU is tremendously unique. It is a place where students come and learn about the space business over a broad experience range that they can only get here. For instance, if, you know, a scientist who only looks at science doesn't really understand some of the engineering, space structures, satellite applications, space policy and law. Okay, what do they care about that? There's so many other aspects of learning about space. Students get exposed to that here. And that's really important. So they bring their depth and they learn the breadth of the whole business. What they end up doing is making fast friends because this is just a fire hose of information. They get tested on it. They have to pass. They work on a team project. They have to get that done. And then they go back to wherever they are, you know, whether it's a space agency or it's a, a industry or government. And they end up with fast friends. So when I first started in ISU in 1992, I had a fabulous time. I, I was asked to come and teach a couple courses, which I did, one of which was developing uh, uh, HTML. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the reason why is uh, I had just put the data center on the World Wide Web, and it was number 200 on the World Wide Web. Wow. I also developed a structure for NASA's internet uh, worldwide web presence at every one of the centers. And uh, that was done in the early 90s. And it wasn't until like 1998 that it got recognized that this is an important thing for the communicating with the public. I'm quite proud of, of, of doing, doing many of those things. ISU then provides this latest technologies. So one of the things I did is I taught a class, the very first one, at ISU in the metaverse. Kidding. When was this? No kidding. No kidding. Just, just, just two weeks, two two weeks, weeks ago. ago. Oh, okay. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. That was Tara Rutley and I, and uh, we talked about human performance in space. Mm -hmm. Worked with a group called the Metavisionaries, and they created a spaceship for it in virtual reality. And this spaceship orbited the Earth. And it was sort of like a saucer with a clear dome. So you could sit in the seats in an auditorium and see the earth in the back room. And then the stage is where Tara and I would go and explain things about human factors in space. And so when she talked about the you know, circulatory system, she had a three-dimensional beating heart above her. Or she talked about inner ear problems. You had the entire ear that you could see and the canals and then how the ear worked. We talked about the twin study and, and we answered questions. I want to thank you for sending me a, a YouTube copy of the, the video of the lecture that you gave in the metaverse 
which we will also put a link to on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio, because it's it's really fun. People really should take a look at it. This stuff is starting to be not just practical, but really exciting. And I think, Jim Green, that I can draw a line from 40 years ago or more, I hesitate to say, when you were sitting at keyboards and looking at you know physical printouts from those right. Univac uh, supercomputers for the right. time, and and the passion that you're expressing now about this new technology, about teaching in this this metaverse. I'm I'm am I right about that? You are. Uh, it's <laughs> a view that I've always had that computers are there to help us, and anything we can do to leverage them really makes our job easier. I've seen that every time I have. Uh, put new nodes on NASA's early network to connect to space agencies. You know, we, we transferred uh, commands over this network. We did testing in chambers. You know, we were doing things like that in the 80s. And then when HTML came along, and this, this means this is the language of the World Wide Web, Teaching that was a no-brainer, you know, where the students then could create their own profiles. And, and now that's ubiquitous, of course. Uh, every company has to have some sort of presence on the web. Phone books are gone if you want to look for somebody. <laughs> well, the next version, of course, I think is that virtual reality. The ability for uh, many organizations, uh, and that includes uh, space agencies, not just industries and companies, to have some sort of presence in the in the metaverse where you can walk in to see their laboratories, see the facilities that are there, you know, where they're soliciting, you know, perhaps instruments to come in and use their facilities to do testing, et cetera, that will end up perhaps on spacecraft or the International Space Station or even that next generation, the commercial stations that are being planned by a number of companies. So I think this is a, this is a trend that's going to continue, and, and we just have to get involved in it, understand it, figure out where the best features of it really give us the opportunity to share information and to teach. So it, the time is now. It also strikes me that for people like uh, you and me and uh, some others out there, this is a new and much more immersive way to share that PB&J, that passion, beauty, and joy. And, and you know, uh, uh, I, you told me a secret uh, uh, a little while ago about uh, that I shouldn't tell University of Iowa. I will let you in on a secret. Don't share this with my bosses. All right. Okay. <laughs> it, it is the joy of getting up in front of real people and talking about this stuff that we love. I think right. you feel this too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've had it for quite a while. Uh, I recognized when I started teaching at the International Space University, you know, teaching wasn't my job at NASA. Mm. But I had this passion to tell people what I'm doing. And I started by by emulating Don Garnett, who has such a wonderful way uh, as my thesis advisor to talk about the science he was doing and really bring in people from different disciplines. Everyone wanted to go see a Don Garnett talk, whether, whether you were, you know, a particle physicist or looking at the sun, you knew he was going to talk about magnetospheric plasma waves, you know, really esoteric. And yet you would walk away getting an appreciation for the field and understanding what's going on. Well, I caught that bug and I did that for 
oh, I don't know, 10 years or so as a scientist. And, and then when I had a chance to talk at uh, uh, ISU, I took it and really enjoyed it. And I have to tell you, the first, first probably first couple years, I wasn't really good at it because I wasn't teaching at the level the students were. I was teaching at a science level. And I soon recognized that. And, and, and I was able, I think, to make that transition. I must have because they keep inviting me back every year to teach. There's, there's more evidence of that in the uh, wonderful podcast that you do, Gravity Assist, which I hesitate to talk about because it is a great podcast, which of course makes you competition, but I, I do recommend it. And we'll put a link to Gravity Thank Assist you. up uh, also on this week's uh, episode page. Before I leave this, you know, asking you for your favorite moments, your highlights from your time, particularly at, at NASA uh, as the head of planetary sciences and the chief scientist, I hope you'll say something about those 12 years that you spent as the head of the Planetary Science Division. Well, that's probably what I would say is my best moments at NASA, having the opportunity to literally help lead the planetary community to new heights. I think over those 12 years, I ushered in a new golden age of exploration. Yeah, where we yeah. rejuvenated what we were doing at Mars and moved forward with the top things like sample return by, by creating that next set of missions. Also, moving forward with not leaving out the outer planets, you know, starting with Juno and then creating the Clipper mission, which we did, which is another huge step, but also the international connections I made where we're part of the JUICE mission, which is also a, a, a Jupiter mission and doing all kinds of other things around the, around the solar system that has really sparked so much interest in not only the science community, but the general public, like planetary defense. Mm, you know, yes. When I started in 2006 as head of planetary, planetary defense had $4.5 million. We had a congressional mandate to do something from the only one part of, uh, of Congress, and these are uh, the people that are uh, authorizers, we authorize you to do this work. And then the appropriators appro appropriate money for you to do that. Well, the appropriators didn't give us much money. And so we constantly had to fight an uphill battle, but, but we were slowly successful. We built the budget. I grabbed every resource I could get, you know, as uh, astronomy was ending a mission called WISE, we were able to grab that mission and use it as a pathfinder to demonstrate, and I think clearly demonstrate, the importance of looking for near-Earth objects in the infrared from a space advantage. Because right now, all we do is look for those on ground-based observatories, and that happens to be only at night. Yeah. You know, there's another hemisphere out there that we sort of ignore. So uh, huge steps are, uh, have been taken in making DART happen. DART is our a double asteroid redirect test where we're going to go out and hit a moon of an asteroid and watch its orbit change. And that'll give us an understanding of the size of asteroids, near-Earth objects, that uh, if they are a potential threat, how we might be able to move them. And that tells us when we need to be able to do it such that they miss the Earth. All kinds of stuff happen like that. 
And I was quite privileged to be able to have the job for 12 years. Prior to me, on the order of three years was about the average. That's an amazing tenure, 12 years. It is. It'll be a record that'll stand for a while, I'm afraid. <laughs> I bet it will, yeah. And of course, you were talking about Wise becoming Neo-Wise uh, with right. our, our friend Amy Meinzer, who yes. now is still, we're all looking forward to, you know, this a high priority for the planetary side as well, toward that Neo-Surveyor mission. That you bet, me too, policy. me too. You told me an anecdote uh, before we started this that I hope you'll share here as we start to wrap up. And that was about how we came to have this this phrase, seven minutes of terror. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, it was about 2012 when the prospects for the planetary budget looked bleak. Uh, the administration at the time was saying, uh, well, commercial activities like Elon Musk is going to be landing two red dragons on Mars in 2020, and uh, we don't need to have an aggressive Mars program. The concept then of what can we do in this area? Scientists aren't great lobbyists. You know, they're really not. Industry, they'll build an Earth science spacecraft. They don't care if it's planetary or Earth science or whatever it happens to be, so long as they're busy and they're going to be real busy. Hmm. And so I recognized I really needed to talk to the public. I really needed to tell them what they were getting for their money. I needed actually to do that well ahead, well before 2012, but it just occurred to me at that time I needed to really amp it up. So I was able to bring in Kristen Erickson, who has a vast knowledge and outreach. And I said, all I want is one thing is I want you to make sure every man, woman and child on the face of the earth knows that we're going to land a one ton rover on Mars. That, that's your job. It sounds easy, right? <laughs> So this was curiosity, of course. This was curiosity. Yeah, this was curiosity. So she put in place an enormous number of events. You know, we she got a hold of the people that allowed us then to broadcast live in the control room and put that out everywhere in the museums and libraries and even at Times Square where uh, you have thousands of people uh, that could walk around and see that, you know, the United States is landing a one-ton rover on Mars. But I have to tell you, my supervisor at the time, Ed Weiler, was pretty concerned that we were doing too much of an outreach activity in this area without really talking about the downsides. And he was right. You know, I wasn't really, uh, as a very positive person, probably more so than any other division director ever. <laughs> you know, I'm always very positive. Ed would tell me, Jim Green, you know, hope is not a management tool. Well, of course I knew that, you know, I'm not going to hope that it's going to work. It's really based on solid engineering. So I, I really felt good about the landing of it. And if it crashed, it must have been an act of God or something, because we, I think we did everything we could to give it the best shot of landing. But I wasn't telling that story. So I, I mentioned that to Kristen and I said, look, we, we really have to talk about the risks. We don't talk about them much. And soon after that, JPL did a wonderful job bringing in the right people, creating the right concept of um, discussing with the engineers. You know, this was this is not a science discussion, which is what we usually have. This is an engineering uh, discussion for what it takes to really land a one-ton rover on Mars. And what came out of that was seven minutes of terror. 
I couldn't be happier. <laughs> yeah. Oh, listen, we were, this was the phrase of the day as thousands of us stood in the Pasadena Convention Center, holding our breath, waiting through those seven minutes of terror, and then jumping up and down, joining everybody at the, in the JPL control room and all those people in Times Square. It could not have been more exciting. And maybe the greatest tribute to the success of that phrase is all the times I've, when I talk to other mission leaders since then, and they say, well, this is like our seven minutes of terror, but it's really seven months of terror because that's right. how long it would take, you know, James Webb to unfold or something like that. You, you definitely, you and Kristen, you sure were on to something there. Well, JPL pulled it together. They really made it happen. They got the idea. They understood what needed to happen. And they were delighted to talk about it because, uh, as I said, a lot of that fantastic engineering that goes on just doesn't get really uh, discussed in a way that shows how hard it is. You know, when Ed Weiler was telling me, you know, well, what happens if it crashes? I said, well, this is a strategic mission. It's my responsibility. Someone's going to get fired, and that's probably me. And he said, "Yes, that is. You know, if that if that mission crashes, you know, you're going to be you're going to be history." Okay. And uh, uh, so I was willing to 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 take the chance that uh, it was going to work right because I, I felt we did everything we could possibly do. You know, I interacted with the JPL people all the time. Uh, Doug McQuistian, uh, my Marsar, you know, that's the branch within planetary science that manages all the assets. He was just working night and day uh, uh, with the JPL people. He felt really confident about it. Uh, I know where Ed was coming from. Of course, Ed was the head of the, of the optical branch when Hubble was launched and had the mirror problem. And so consequently, he was really uh, beat up by the press a lot. Uh, that came came through, you know, he was able to to uh, live through that experience. And I'm sure he felt that, he, he, you know, that was so painful. Let's not do it again. Yeah, but it's sure. one of these things that, you know, everyone's everyone's going to know it crashes if, if that's what happens or everyone's going to know it landed safely. And so let's take that journey together. I mean, to me, that just made the most sense. Jim, you are still making history, fortunately for all of us, uh, of the good kind. Um, I got just one other question for you. Now that you have changed your status at NASA, right? I mean, gave up being chief scientist and you told me the next day they made you a senior advisor. Well, what if, what if they came back to you tomorrow and said, Jim, uh, we're going to the moon. We're going to do real science. Uh, we got a mission planned for about five years from now. And um, we just figure with your multidisciplinary background and your enthusiasm, you're the right guy to go to the moon and uh, conduct this research for us. So what, what would you, yes or no, would you say? Well, the answer would be yes. It's <laughs> part of my uh, character. I rarely say no. Uh, some people would say uh, that, that's a character flaw. But I have to tell you what I have learned by saying yes, even with things that, that, don't sound like the right thing I should be doing, but I learn an enormous amount. And I've always constantly taken that in and applied it. NASA provides so many opportunities to learn so many different things. I was in uh, source evaluation boards and technical advisory groups and things that sound like they, 
they are just yuck for a scientist. Why would you spend, you know, months of your time buried in a room and comparing the requirements against an individual proposal and making decisions right and left? The, the, the reason is we want the best value. We want the best partners. And when we get them, magic happens. This is the government process. I never was afraid about learning the government process and using it. And so consequently, if NASA asked me to go to the moon and uh, interview the, uh, the astronauts that are there and asking them their gravity assist in 1G, I'd do it. <laughs> Jim, I will see you on the moon, I hope, someday, at least in the metaverse moon. I knew it would be a great pleasure. It always is to talk, and, and you certainly have uh, delivered. Thank you for this and keep up the great work. Well, thanks so much, Matt. I really enjoyed your podcast. I listen to it all the time. And I hope everyone continues to do that. Thank you, Jim. That's very nice. My pleasure. It's time again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist who I referred to up front when I read my my special announcement today, uh, the person who has uh, been heard on all of these uh, episodes of the show and uh, will be hopefully for a long time to come. That's Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Thank you. This is not fair because I don't know what people, what did you, I don't know how mean you were. <laughs> I was oh, nice. Be mean or nice. No, I was nice. I'll be both. I'll Tell be them both. everyone I was nice, wasn't I? Yeah, they say I was. Yeah, they're on your side. You're a nicer person. <laughs> Matt, don't leave. Sorry. Sorry. Well, Sorry. thank you. Uh, it's it's okay. tough. It's it's very tough. I uh, I love so much of what I do with this uh, with this program, including talking to you every week for what's up. I love it too, man. <laughs> okay, uh, let's just go on. I should have. I've got a few more months. Hey. Dude, hey, it's been cool. Fear me. So, uh, dude, what's going on up there? Uh, there are four planets that are like super bright, dude. So, but seriously, folks, pre-dawn sky, uh, actually Saturn, even coming up in the east in the mid-evening now, but in the pre-dawn sky, you can see four planets going from super bright Venus down low by the horizon and then up to Mars looking reddish, bright Jupiter and yellowish Saturn in a line, but that line is, continues to spread out across the sky. If you pick this episode up shortly after it comes out on July 21st, the moon is very close to Mars. Uh, here, I got something different for you. If you can find bright reddish Mars over in the east, between July 30th and August 3rd, got some binoculars, Look around reddish Mars. There's a blue dot. It's Uranus. Oh, no kidding. Work better if you find a sky chart and know exactly where to look. But in those days, July 30th to August 3rd, there will be a bluish star-like object that you will need binoculars to see or really good eyes in a really dark sight. I will give it a shot. Thank you. On to this week in space history. Nothing happened this week other than humans landing for the first time on the moon in 1969 and... More significantly, light sail to successfully deploying its solar sail in 2019. Congratulations on that. By the, you know, we celebrated the launch uh, a little while ago with uh, Bill and, and Jennifer Vaughn. But, uh, but really, I mean, if anything, this is at least as maybe more significant because this is when 
you and your colleagues uh, got to start sailing, right? Yeah, no, it went from uh, just another CubeSat to uh, the first uh, controlled solar sailing demonstration of a small satellite. We move on to random space fact, random space fact, random space fact. Scott Kelly, well-known astronaut, almost a year in space, longest time for American at one time. He retired from NASA after 20 years of being an astronaut. Matt Kaplan is retiring as planetary radio host after 20 years. Coincidence? You be the judge. Hey, Scott, I'll be in touch. We, we move on to the trivia contest. I said the following. On Brazil's flag, only one star of the 27 stars is shown above the white band. What star and what Brazilian state does it represent? How do we do, Matt? Biggest response that we've had in quite a long time. So much of it from all over the world, and we'll have some representative samples of that. But first, Dave Fairchild, the uh, Poet Laureate of Planetary Radio out there in Kansas. 27 stars are there upon a globe of blue. It's just about ad astra as a flag is going to do. There's only one above the band. It isn't very cryptic. It's Spica and the Parastape above the white ecliptic. Cool. Nice. Yes, that conveys our correct answers. This is going to be a problem. We heard from several Brazilians, not surprisingly, in response to this question, including Francisco Garcia and uh, Eduardo Quitete. Oh, Lord, my Spanish pronunciation is bad enough. Portuguese, hopeless. Para is a neighbor of the Maranhão state, says Eduardo, where the Alcantara launch site is. And uh, Eduardo added, it's my first space trivia contest. Uh, Eduardo was a longtime listener, Planetary Society member since 1993 or so. And he says, I dare you to speak para like a Brazilian or a Portuguese would. Yeah, I'm not going to pick up that dare, I'm afraid, Eduardo. Yeah, I mean, I got the Spanish thing, but uh, I mean, it took me a while to even remember to acknowledge the accent. So I'm going with para. And I'm going with our winner, a first-time winner. <laughs> Jeff Toon in California. Congratulations, Jeff. He said, Spica, which represents the Brazilian state of Para, which is partially in the Northern Hemisphere in Brazil, which explains why it's above the line. So uh, congratulations, Jeff. You're going to get that copy of Lori Garver's really excellent new book, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA and launch a new space age. Laura Dodd, longtime listener, writes in, enters all the time. She says, thanks, Bruce. I hadn't looked at the Brazilian flag very closely before, so hadn't thought about the stars on it. I keep learning things with a little help from you. Courtney Katz in Pennsylvania says, Spica's actually a binary system, which I did not know. I didn't either, but, you know, there are a lot of them out there. That's true. They're kind of dime a dozen, aren't they? Uh, Pierre-Louis <laughs> Fan, our fan in France. This represents the night sky of November 11, 1889, which was the day that uh, Brazil became independent. But on this date, Venus should have been close to Spica. Poor Venus is always ignored. Oh. Okay, well, here's another one. Hyun Woo Chang in Korea. I just looked up some pictures of Spica. Dang, it's beautiful. 
And he says, have a great day, everyone. Norman Kassoon in the UK, another one of our uh, every week uh, entrants. Both a rocket and crew capsule designed and under development by Copenhagen Suborbitals, a crowdfunded space program, are named Spica. Spica aims to make Denmark the first country to launch its own astronaut to space after Russia, the U.S., and China. Something else I'd never heard from. You people out there are so good at this stuff. You're so smart. We learn from you, too. Well, I mean, you do. <laughs> I'm kidding. I learn every week. You get confirmation. <laughs> I find out when I'm wrong. And I hate that. <laughs> Ian Gilroy in Australia, I think there are around 60 national flags that have one or more star or stars on them. Brazil, of course, 27, the second most after the U.S., 50, I think. Many Southern Hemisphere countries have the Southern Cross, the crux on their flag, including Brazil and my home country of Australia. Edwin King in the U.K., I'll be tuning in next week for Dr. Bruce Betts Presents Fun with Flags. <laughs> I I could go on. There's all sorts of good, weird stuff. We'll close with one more poem from Jean Lewin in Washington. Into the night sky we peered with just the mortal eye. Stars were placed in constellations when they were first described. Their presence so inspires they are used to represent. Locations here upon the earth ascribed with an intent. Adorning the Brazilian flag, speak of part of Virgo, connoting the state of para above motto, ordem e progresso. 27 stars in all matching positions astronomical upon a blue celestial field, making these stars vexillogical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, study those flags. Yes, it'll, next week will be Dr. Bruce Spetz's vexology show. <laughs> In fact, you're just, you're just done now, right? I know, I mean, you're done with this show. You retired, so I can do my vexology show instead. I think you should do it as a side like. We'll we'll just call it uh, Planetary Radio Vexology Edition. Nice. You're not rid of me yet. I'm here for you know at least four more months of of actually sitting in this. Oh, chair. I already did the tearful sad goodbye. That's all right. It was a rehearsal. There are two other states that are above the equator. They were just made states in '92. So is that why? The, why don't they appear above the band? Beats me. I think it may have to do with why the United States never added a 51st state, because it would screw up the flag. The asymmetry would be awful. Yeah, we did hear that from some people, that it is not the only state in Brazil that has a portion of it above the equator. Brazilians, let us know. All right, here we go into a different realm. What was the first published scientific work to include telescopic observations of the moon? As a hint, it included drawings. I don't know if that's much of a hint. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Fascinating. You have until the 27th. That would be uh, July 27 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to uh, get us the answer for this one. And in honor of uh, the announcement that I made today, let's give away another kick asteroid rubber asteroid from the planetary society then uh, and uh, it could be yours we're done all right everybody go out there look up the night sky and think about a caricature of matt surfing thank you and good night <laughs> body surfing only tried board surfing once in my life didn't like it probably shouldn't have used a longboard I'm, I'm still into that and i think uh, the chief scientist of the planetary society dr bruce betts uh, 
is still, or was at least at one time, uh, a fellow California surfer. He joins us every week here for What's Up. Windsurfing, dude. Did you really? Hey, I was a windsurfing teacher. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members like me. See you at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro. Ad Astro.